0: And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout.
1: Hey, y'all, it's Beth. Let's chat for a couple of minutes about antitrust laws. On Tuesday's episode, Sarah and I are going to talk about antitrust laws and the existence of giant corporations and what that means for our public policy and our economy. So we thought we would set the table with a very quick and high-level overview of antitrust laws. These are laws that are intended to protect and promote competition on the merits in particular markets. So antitrust law is not about how big any one business is. It's about certain market sectors and how much of the market share a business controls within those sectors and whether businesses are playing fairly within those sectors. Healthy competition is important because theoretically it should protect consumers. If sellers of products or services are all fairly competing with each other, then the consumer should be able to get better products at fair prices Good companies should prosper. Companies with a bad product or service should go out of business. And overall, the economy should work pretty well for everyone. Justice Thurgood Marshall of the Supreme Court in the 1970s wrote that antitrust laws are the Magna Carta of free enterprise. They are as important to the preservation of economic freedom and our free enterprise system as the Bill of Rights is to the protection of our fundamental personal freedoms. So that coming from a Supreme Court justice is a pretty compelling reason for us to all have a little better understanding of what antitrust law is. We first started to see antitrust law after the Civil War. So the United States was going through a period of dramatic shifts in every way. Slavery had been abolished. We had more immigration into the United States. Because of the Industrial Revolution, we had rapid economic growth and this transition from an agrarian to a manufacturing economy. In the midst of all of that, massive business trusts started to emerge and those trusts would own companies that controlled major aspects of the economy like banking, steel, coal, oil, railroads and land. It was too much power of the over the economy concentrated in too few hands. And so Congress responded in 1890 by passing the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Act makes restraint of trade illegal, and later the Supreme Court clarified that it does not make all restraint of trade illegal. It makes unreasonable restraint of trade illegal. So obviously, anytime you're talking about reasonable versus unreasonable, there's a lot of gray area and judicial interpretation on specific facts is going to become very important. What you should know about the Sherman Act is just broadly speaking, it says we can't have businesses fixing prices, allocating markets or rigging bids. And I'll talk more about all of that in a moment. The Sherman Act can be enforced civilly by private parties or criminally. So the Department of Justice has an antitrust division that can prosecute businesses for really blatant and intentional violations of the Sherman Act. If the DOJ prosecutes a Sherman Act violation, you can see penalties, including both fines and prison time. In 1914, so after the Sherman Act has been around for a while, Congress gets a little more specific. It creates the Federal Trade Commission and empowers it to take active measures to both prevent and address unfair trade practices. So the FTC can go after companies engaged in unfair and deceptive practices and It can make rules that specifically define practices that are unfair or deceptive and create requirements or regulations intended to prevent those acts. The FTC can investigate companies. It can review mergers and acquisitions prior to them being carried out. And it can make reports and recommendations to Congress. The president appoints five commissioners to the FTC, Three of those can be from one party, but no more than three, so it has to be a bipartisan group. The president also appoints a chair. The five FTC commissioners have to be confirmed by the Senate, and they're supposed to serve seven-year terms. We only have two FTC commissioners right now instead of five. Both of those commissioners are women, one Republican and one Democrat, and they are both trying to come to consensus to get through their docket right now as we wait more FTC appointments. One of those women, the Republican, is acting as the chair of the FTC right now, but it is anticipated that she will be replaced by a permanent chair at some point during the Trump administration. There's a Bureau of Competition that supports the federal trade commissioners. It is also not staffed up right now. There is an acting director, an acting deputy director, and, of course, a number of folks who've worked there for their entire careers. But those positions are not firmed up either. It's important to note that much of the work the FTC does is not public. So FTC investigations are usually kept quiet because there is no reason to create a lot of disruption in the marketplace unless something is really wrong. So a lot of very important work is being done. A lot of very important questions are being asked that are not done in the public light. Congress passes the FTC Act in 1914. It also passes the Clayton Act, which gets more granular than the Sherman Act and prohibits mergers and acquisitions where the effect may be to substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly. The Clayton Act has been amended a couple of times and also interpreted in case law in very significant ways. So I am going to stick with all of this at a very high level because beyond that, you really get into the weeds of how courts have interpreted these laws in specific contexts, and some real legal jargon that I think is beyond the scope of what we need to have a good philosophical discussion of antitrust law. There is one more piece of legislation that is worth mentioning before I move on to what all of this is really intended to do. In 1933, Congress dealt with the financial sector through the Banking Act which is more commonly known as Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall, at a very high level, separated commercial banking, you know, I go and I have a checking account or I get a loan, from investment banking. And it was later repealed. We could do an entire primer and probably should on the regulation of the financial industry and really get into Glass-Steagall more. For now, I just want to say that it is part of the body of antitrust law together with the FTC Act, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act. But I think it requires a lot more specificity than we need to get into today as well. So if you put all of this together, what are we really trying to do through our legislation on this topic? we don't want people to cheat their way to monopoly power. So when we talk about monopolies, we're saying we have a space where there's a dominant player. There are really high barriers to entry, so it's difficult for other people to get in and compete with that dominant player. And that player controls so much of the market share that it can set prices at whatever it wants. Now, there are times when businesses legally make their way into monopoly status. We don't punish companies for just being the best in their market segments. But we do want to prevent them from doing things to actively undermine competition instead of just trying to be the best they can be. That is obviously a really fine line and fodder for economists and lawyers to have endless arguments because we're trying to create an economy where businesses can be really successful. You want to reward innovation. You want to reward great service and great products but you don't want it to cross over into a space where consumers are harmed because of the growth and control of particular companies. So we don't want single businesses to have such a dominant share in particular market segments that it harms competition. We also don't want competitors working together in ways that harm competition. So we don't want two companies to sit down and decide here are the prices that we're going to charge for these products. That's called horizontal price fixing. We don't want two companies to get together in advance of an auction or a bidding process to decide how to respond. That's called bid rigging. We don't want competitors to, amongst themselves, allocate territories or specific customers or specific markets. That's called horizontal market allocation. We don't want businesses to force people to buy things they don't need in order to get things that they do. That's called unlawful tying. In all of those areas, we want the market to solve those questions without collusion among competitors to work them out in ways that are beneficial for them. So those are the major issues, but there are lots of other practices that in certain contexts harm trade. And so our antitrust laws... Are passed by Congress and then interpreted by courts and federal agencies, and everyone is trying to balance all kinds of competing interests to figure out if trade is being harmed. And if something is harming trade, is it a necessary thing? And if it's a necessary thing, is there a less harmful way to accomplish it? So I want to give you a couple of ex- recent examples of how this stuff matters. Walgreens recently called off its deal to acquire all Rite Aid stores because of trouble getting FTC approval. That started to look like monopoly power in the drugstore segment. So now Walgreens is just going to buy like 50% of Rite Aids. Similarly, the FTC brought a lawsuit to block the DraftKings FanDuel merger because that was too much market share in its opinion. On the more deceptive trade practices side, the FTC recently settled a lawsuit with DeVry University over misleading advertisements. This is pretty interesting. The university in that scenario said that 90% of graduates landed jobs within six months of graduation and after one year had 15% higher incomes than graduates of all other colleges. The FTC got involved, said this was deceptive, and the school is now giving partial refunds and debt forgiveness to over 173,000 students. Very real consequences of the enforcement of antitrust law. It's worth noting that antitrust law and enforcement has certainly been impacted by partisanship, but not in clean and predictable ways. Commentators expected the Obama administration to be much tougher in antitrust enforcement than it ultimately was. Hillary Clinton's campaign platform included a statement that antitrust law needed to be more vigorously enforced. That didn't receive a lot of attention, but it certainly would have been interesting to see how that shook out. And where President Trump stands on antitrust law is anybody's guess. Step one would be to get that Federal Trade Commission staffed up. So that's where I will leave it with you. And Sarah and I will join you on Tuesday for a discussion. Thanks, y'all.